people are being asked to to make a decision about what they're going to spend the next four years of their life based on, uh, you know, an electronic visit where you're not even a hundred percent sure that the person on the other side is wearing pants. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a big, it's a, it's a leap of faith. Hello and welcome to Brain Boy Neurology. I'm your host, Jamie Holloman. Let's get started. Welcome to Brain Boy Neurology, the podcast where we explore clinical neurology through discussions with experts in the field. Today, we're going to have a slightly different type of episode. I'll be talking with my co-chiefs, Dr. Matt Breyer and Dr. Misty Harrison, about choosing a neurology residency program. At the time we're recording this podcast, which is in late January, medical students all around the country have just concluded their interviews for neurology residency programs and are now faced with the difficult task of ranking these programs. For those who are not familiar with the process, all fourth-year medical students interested in training in neurology apply to residency programs in the first part of their fourth year. These programs then send out interview offers to qualified applicants, and the applicants interview at some or all of the programs that offer them interview invitations. The interview process typically starts in November and wraps up in late January. Depending on how many places you've applied to, You can interview in as little as five to six programs or as many as 30 or 40. I personally interviewed at 20 different residency programs. After they finish interviewing, the medical students rank all the programs, one to however many they interviewed at, and submit this list online. The residency programs also rank all the applicants they interviewed and submit their own list. An algorithm then uses all the data from these different lists to determine which applicants are matched to each program. Then traditionally on match day, which is in the middle of March, you get a letter that indicates where you'll be going to residency for the next four years. This is an incredibly exciting day that represents the culmination of years and years of hard work. Typically, the medical school has a tradition on match day of how medical students open their envelopes. At Georgetown, where I went to medical school, the whole fourth-year medical school class gathers friends and family in our large 400-person auditorium, and everyone opens their letters at the same time. It's a very nerve-wracking experience. A lot of emotions flow through this room, and most of them are incredibly positive, but unfortunately, some of them are not so positive. If you didn't match at the place you'd hoped, you're usually pretty bummed. So to make sure things go as well as they possibly can on match day, we'll give you some tips on how to choose the best neurology residency program for you. Matt and Misty, my guests today, are the perfect people to talk about this process. They are the administrative chief residents at WashU. This means they have a ton of leadership responsibilities one of which is organizing and carrying out our residency recruitment process. They read all the personal statements, work with our leadership to offer interviews to applicants, plan and organize the faculty interviews, and then chaperone interviewees on interview day. They've met over 100 different residents from all over the world. They'll give you their insights about the process and share some tips on how to choose a neurology program. But before we talk with them, I thought it'd be helpful to provide a little look behind the scenes on how the residency recruitment process proceeds from the perspective of WashU Neurology. My hope is that this will demystify it a little and give you some insight into how we select our residents. So the process starts with WashU going through all its applications. Matt and Misty read all the personal statements and then work with our program director and assistant program director to determine which applicants should be offered interviews. Interviews are offered for a whole variety of different reasons. An applicant might have particularly strong clinical grades or step scores, a compelling personal statement, or an interesting research project. Something that makes us think 
this person would make a great neurologist and would be a great fit for WashU. If the person accepts the interview, they're then invited to St. Louis to tour our facilities and meet with our faculty. In pre-pandemic times, this was obviously done in person, but this year everything happened over Zoom. The interview experience is a two-day process where on the first day, the interviewee meets with our current residents and faculty to informally learn more about the program and get a feel for the program's culture. On the second day, they hang out with the residents and then have three 30-minute interviews with faculty members. An interviewee uh, typically interviews with our program director, our chairman of neurology, and one other senior neurology faculty member. Each of these interviewers then assigns the interviewee a numerical rating that encapsulates their perception of the strength of the applicant. How each faculty member determines their rating is individualized, but is influenced by the applicant's grades, both their clinical and preclinical grades, their step scores, letters of recommendation, research experiences, and the interview itself. Once all the interviews are concluded, Matt and Misty are given all the numerical grades for each applicant. They then use these as a starting point to make a, the first rank list, ranking all the applicants in order from one to however many people interviewed, which is typically in the low 100s. Then in late February, most of the neurology department leadership and any neurology residents who'd like to attend meet in one of our conference rooms and discuss the rank list. We look at every single applicant and discuss whether or not anyone's position should be changed from this initial rank list. This usually takes about three hours. Then our program's rank list is set and, and we hope for the best. So that's the residency side of things. Now let's switch gears and explore the resident's perspective and ask our guests their advice on choosing a neurology residency program. This was a great conversation and I hope you find it helpful. So I'm sitting here with uh, Matt and Misty. Uh, Matt and Misty, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah. Our pleasure. Great. So for our topic today, I, I was hoping to talk about all the different things that you should consider when choosing a neurology program and particularly for our, our medical students who have just finished the interview process and are sitting down to make their rank list, uh, things that they should consider and things that you guys considered when you were in their shoes. I, I thought a great place to start um, would be with you, Misty. I just wanted to, to chat with you a little bit. Um, if you wouldn't mind thinking back, putting yourself in the, the shoes of when you were a medical student going through this process, were there specific things that you were considering? Yeah. So um, I came from a smaller program, uh, like in medical school. So I was exposed to a program of four residents a year. Um, and while all of those people were great, um, the subspecialty opportunities were pretty limited and the hour, um, the hour restrictions were pretty limited. So what I ended up doing was I applied very broadly. Um, disclaimer is that I don't have, like, I'm not married. I don't have a family or anything like that to consider in my moving endeavor. So, I was, I felt like I was like an unrestricted free agent and I just applied to wherever I wanted to. Um, so it was nice to see all the different programs. And so eventually I, I wasn't really sure what I was looking for when I started the process, but by the end of everything, you know, comparing different programs to each other, I kind of settled on, I wanted something, um, I wanted a place that had a lot of residents, um, that just allows for some flexibility in scheduling. Um, I wanted a place that was big enough that had all the subspecialties that I could um, be exposed to so I could make a good fellowship decision because I was thinking about a fellowship and great cost of living for someone who's single and doesn't necessarily, 
you know, know anyone in the city to split rent with or something. So those were like the big, big three things for me. Absolutely. And did you have any specific geographic preference or did you pretty much apply all across the country? Yeah, I applied all across the country. Um, and so in that, I started finding that, of course, I didn't know any better at the time, but like the East Coast and West Coast uh, places were way more expensive um, than, you know, middle of America, South, you know, Southern states and, um, you know, basically like the states in between. So um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the rent differential, I went from Washington DC where I was paying 1600 a month to now in, in St. Louis where I'm paying 70, 25 a month. And so you huge amount of savings when you make that transition. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, Honestly, uh, when I was looking at resident salaries and benefits, you know, you start noticing patterns, too, of like how much you get paid and how much more like how much further your money can stretch uh, with just a little bit of salary. Because if you get paid here, like more than you would get paid on the East Coast, this would, you know, stretch way further, um, obviously, than it would there if you get paid more here than there. Yeah. And I think some of the uh, programs in like the super expensive cities. So I'm thinking like New York City and uh, San Francisco and, and Palo Alto with, with Stanford do give like an additional stipend to their residents to try to help offset some of that cost. But I think if like you sit down and did the math, the uh, bump in the cost of living doesn't nearly offset the the amount that you're getting um, from the, uh, the residency stipend. So as you said, you money goes a lot further in the, in the Midwest. So you, you come out ahead in a good amount of Midwest programs and the Southern programs. Yeah, exactly. And you can buy a lot more space in a place that builds out rather than up. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're um, looking to buy, I know you own a condo, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, I think that uh, also makes that a lot easier. And, and Matt, I, so uh, a good reason I wanted to chat with all three of us, because I think we all have probably slightly different takes on, on what we were looking for in programs and how we approach the process. So I think it'd be an interesting sort of examination of all the different approaches you can have. Matt, did you take a different approach, a similar approach when you were looking at residencies? Yeah. So I think that, you know, people should know that I, I did my graduate medical school and graduate school, uh, my MD and my PhD here at WashU, and then uh, chose to stay for for residency, and you know part of that was was the the culture and the training program, and and a lot of that was kind of research momentum and wanting to continue in the same same vein of research that I that I built up a lot of collaborations and new people and and was comfortable, uh, you know. But I, I interviewed a lot of places, and there's a lot of competitive places uh, and a lot of really really great training programs. Um, you know, the thing that, that it came down to for me, you know, similar to what Misty's saying about, you know, lifestyle and those kinds of things is I'm married and, and didn't at the time, but now have, have a child, uh, but was, you know, were, was thinking about that at the time. And so a lot of the financial considerations that, that Misty brought up, you know, certainly played into the decision about how easy it is to raise a family here. Uh, but, but beyond just kind of dollars and cents, I think that there's also a lot of cultural issues or cultural considerations, I guess I would say. And, and, you know, 
I fit in really well here. I think, I mean, Absolutely. I think, you know, I, you know, people, you know, I like all the people here. These, 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 my co-residents both above me and below me are my friends. Uh, and I could envision that when I was, you know, interviewing and, and from experiences in the department, you know, during grad school. Uh, and so I think that, I think that something that can't be understated, can't be overstated, sorry, can't be overstated as a consideration is the feel and fit of a residency program when you visit. And that, that is tough this year, right? Um, Cause it's hard to know what a residency program is like and what the people are like, you know, over zoom or whatever interview platform people use to, to do their virtual visits this year. So I think that's an added challenge that is the kind of, you know, elephant or 800 pound gorilla or whatever metaphor you want to use in the corner of the room is that people are being asked to, to make a decision about what they're going to spend the next four years of their life based on, uh, you know, an electronic visit where you're not even a hundred percent sure that the person on the other side is wearing pants. You know, it's, it's a big, <laughs> it's a, it's a leap of faith to, to do that. And I know programs have tried, I know Misty and I tried really hard to, to show off kind of an accurate representation of our program's culture. Um, but, but that's a, that's a huge part of this too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll, we'll probably touch on some of the specific aspects of residency programs that you can think about, but at least for me, a lot of the final considerations came down to that gut feeling that you had when you were at a program, when you were meeting the residents, when you were walking around, exploring the city that, um, as you just mentioned, is kind of lost on when you're doing just a Zoom visit. Um, and particularly, I, I think I met quite a few applicants this interview cycle who have never been to St. Louis before. Um, and I don't know if you guys had any specific recommendations for someone like that who's maybe thinking about cities that they've never even been to. Um, how do you, how would you maybe coach someone in that type of a situation? Yeah, so... Um it would be very difficult for me to like uh, rank a place very highly having never been to the city. Um, but if I had that, you know, gut feeling that, you know, I like the residents here, I think I would fit in here. I myself, if I were in this situation would probably try to go visit the city to see, you know, how it feels yep. in person. Um, not necessarily that you'd be able to do very much in a pandemic, but, you know, it's, it's always nice to see the area where the hospital is, you know, get a lay of the land, um, as they say. Uh, I think that's probably what I would do in this situation because, you know, you, you never want to um, have to move to a place for four years that you've never been to before. That would be rough because what if you don't like the city? Yeah, residency is hard, right? Neurology residency is, you know, you do, you do your intern year and then you do kind of a second neurology intern year. And then, and then you live the good life third and fourth year, at least in our program, you know, where there's, where it's very front loaded. And most of the, most of the programs that I'm familiar with are equally front loaded. And so you, you're going to be working hard. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. And I, I'm, I'm proud to have completed or nearly completed it. Um, but you want to be able to know that you have the support structure that you're going to need and the, and you're going to be happy where you're living. And so getting some kind of feel for the city, whether it's a friend who's lived there, visiting in person is obviously the most ideal. You want to know that you're going to be able to thrive where you're going because hospital life is largely similar, you know, regardless of what hospital you're in. Um, yep. You know, the cafeteria food is bad at every hospital cafeteria. The, the, <laughs> you know, the call rooms are Spartan. 
but it's what is outside of the hospital that really, I think makes the difference. And then the support structure. So that, that like gut feeling of, you know, these residents that I'm meeting with, they're going to recruit residents like them by and large. Are these people, are these the kind of people I want to spend, you know, a large number of hours a week with? And I think that's, it's hard to quantify. You can't put it in a rubric, but that's, that's the, that's the sell, I think. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's, that's great advice. Like if you can, you know, even if it's maybe a longer car ride, get some free time. If there's a couple programs that you're in between and one on the list is kind of a, a, a wild card because you've never been there, make the trip. Or if you have a friend, sort of call the friend, sort of get their impression of what it's like and, and really try to bridge that gap of, of knowledge. And Matt, you mentioned uh, a little bit about residency organization and uh, one of the specific things to wash you is, is, as Matt mentioned, we have a front-loaded schedule where the bulk of your inpatient time is done second and third year. Um, and I think this was, as Matt mentioned as well, uh, pretty much the, the organization structure of a lot of the larger academic hospitals. Um, but I do remember maybe a couple that I interviewed at um, that maybe had a little bit more of a waiting um of this inpatient time between your second and fourth year sold it in the explanation that it just makes residency more balanced. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about how to think about maybe specifics of program structure in terms of how they do rotations when, when making a decision about residency. Yeah. So this, this might be the kind of unpopular perspective or, or, but I would say that most, the programs that people are looking at are the people or the, the programs like Wash U or, you know, our peer institutions all, train really good neurologists. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the exact way they go about that varies, um, varies slightly, you know, essentially everybody's doing the same thing. You're seeing patients, you're taking care of them and you're learning. Uh, But the outcome is is similar. And so I think the exact construction matters a little bit less. Um, The, the reason programs wait the inpatient experience early is to allow people once they've kind of differentiated themselves into what they want to do, what they want to be when they grow up um, (laughs) to, to focus on that. And so, you know, I'm doing, I have my R25 and I'm on research time now. And Jamie, I know that was your case, you know, last kind of last half year. And so people who are differentiated can use that time at the end of their residency as a catapult and a launch pad to fellowship or faculty or or private practice or whatever their ultimate destination is. And and that flexibility on the back end lets people build momentum during a time when you're protected both financially and, and, you know, you have somebody watching your back clinically, those kinds of things, and lets you really build momentum towards that, that eventual goal. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, yeah, and so I think programs that do that, that's the intention. Um, it makes that second year, you know, uh, a little interesting. Um, and, and it's hard, uh, but you, but you're, you're, this is the down payment on kind of your future. And, and I, uh, I thought of that just now and I really like that phrase. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a bumper sticker quote, uh, if I've ever heard one. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, uh, I'm sort of the poster boy example of, of how you can benefit from that kind of thing where 
I had sort of this protected time during fourth year because I did a lot of inpatient work in second and third year um, through the residency organization. And it allowed me to get into a lab um, type of a context for six months straight and, and do some pretty intense lab research, um, which you really couldn't do in any other type of organization scheme um, just because you just wouldn't have those consecutive months. And as Matt was saying, it just allows you to get a lot of exposure in something that um, hopefully by that point you're really excited about and really want to start doing. So you you can almost hit the ground running once fellowship comes. Um, any other things, Misty, for you that uh, be it uh, organizational structure or maybe call schedule or um, I guess unique opportunities of institutions? specific institutions that you were thinking about when uh, analyzing different programs? Yeah, um, to be quite honest, when I was looking at, you know, um, like call schedules and whatnot, I uh, I came from a program that did do 24-hour calls, and they, in fact, um, their residency program was so small that they had to do them, you know, all four years. And so um, I was looking at programs the programs that were more attractive to me were obviously the ones that had night float systems. But that being said, I obviously uh, looked at the opportunities at WashU and thought that that outweighed the call schedule that we have currently. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also knowing that uh, we would have, you know, the bulk of our call done PGY two year and knowing that I would have that free time to pursue like whatever other interest I, you know, wanted to in third or fourth year that also weighed heavily. Um, so uh, while the other, like, while there are some other programs that spread it out over, you know, the course of four years or so, I kind of feel like, you know, how med school is kind of like all about graduated responsibility. That's how this residency is. Um, you just get a little taste of everything at different levels. And then your fourth year, you just cruise in into finishing residency. So I feel like yeah. That's kind of how medical school was too for fourth year. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, I think uh, to your point, sort of about the calls schedules, I think the general impression I got from the people interviewed this year and last year is that they definitely overall prefer the night float system to like a um, Q4 uh, 24-hour call, which is what we have here at WashU. And that could be changing now. There's a, a proposal currently to potentially switch to a night float system. I am, I'm sort of the uh, maybe outlier or, or, or one person who actually prefers more of like a 24 um, plus four type of call schedule, um, which you're doing longer calls as opposed to days and nights in what you do with the night float system. Um, but I certainly can understand uh, someone who likes the night float system. And I could, uh, in that regard, uh, applicants have hopefully in your medical school experience, you've, you've gotten a little bit of exposure to both, be it on a longer shift through like an ICU rotation and maybe a, a week of nights when you're on OB or something like that. And just trying to build from your own personal experience and say, okay, what did I feel better doing? What did I feel more productive in uh, the type of call schedule? And then maybe potentially extrapolating based on that. But I think as, as Misty said, once you kind of get in the rhythm of things, um, it's pretty easy to manage uh, with both systems. Um, but I, that was an interesting thing that came Jamie, up. I guess, I guess on that point, you know, something that you kind of touched on is extra, you're extrapolating, um, you know, from experiences in short periods of time. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively agnostic to a 24 hour 
call versus a day float night float system. And, and I actually would, if I could go back in time and tell younger and slightly more adventurous Matt what to do, I would, I would, (laughs) I would tell him not to pay that much attention to that. And and the reason is, Mm -hmm. you know, much like conservation of matter or conservation of energy, like there's a conservation of work that needs to be done to make a hospital service run and you can slice and dice it however you want, but that's the same amount of work ultimately. And so you might have a preference for, you know what, I really don't do well when I'm up for 24 hours or, you know, I really get, you know, shift work disorder type symptoms when I work nights, you know? And so that, then that's totally fair on individual basis. But I think, I think trying to kind of min max the, the, the system and say, which one of these is going to be, you know, more agreeable is, is hard because the patients still have to get taken care of and the notes still have to get written and the orders placed and the labs reviewed. And that just takes time and it might be divvied up differently, but ultimately you're going to be doing the same work. And every program has kind of variations on a theme there. So I I would, I would tell younger Matt that it wasn't, that it wasn't the end all be all that he thought it was going in. Yeah. I I totally agree. Definitely something to be uh, de-emphasized and, yeah. And it's tough to tell too. I think it's a whole different beast, maybe doing something one time or a couple of times when you're sort of in a med student role versus kind of having your life either be like a more extended uh, Q4 call schedule and uh, or a more extended uh, night flow type of system. And I something uh, that I used, and, and I don't know if you guys were the same thing uh, when you guys looked at residency programs, but I think just kind of a general program perception or sort of program reputation went a long way for me. I think it made me think of it, Matt, when you're kind of thinking about these smaller things and, and stuff that you're looking at um, and trying to kind of put everything together. I think I, for a lot of programs, I was like, okay, I don't really quite understand how they do things or I can't quite understand their specific quirks or how they're different, but I know they've got a phenomenal reputation um, I know that, you know, I just meeting some of these residents, I can tell that these guys are, are very competent and sort of people I would aspire to be. Um, and so, so I don't know if you guys could comment a little bit about how you factored just program reputation in general into the equation. Yeah. So, um, there exists this app that helps, uh, actually rank the programs. Like it will create a rank list for you based on whatever set criteria, um, you have, uh-huh. and you have the ability to weigh like, you know, things like the reputation of the program heavily or less heavily, or, you know, more heavily or less heavily. And so, of, of course, uh, when I was interviewing at programs, each time I would just write down, you know, like what my impressions were, like what the feel was when I met the residents. And I'd also make a comment about like where they stood in rank lists or, you know, ranks nationwide. And honestly, the ranks didn't really weigh that heavily for me. It was more of like the feel of the program that ended up weighing Mm -hmm. more. But yeah, there are definitely, there's a NRMP app that I would definitely recommend um, people like who are having problems figuring out like how to rank places. You know, there's different categories um, that you can, you know, rate like, you know, somewhere between one and five. And then it comes out with this composite score and it makes your rank list for you. And then you get to readjust it based on the feel. And if you feel like academic, you know, reputation is more important, you can weigh that more heavily. Very cool. Yeah. No, that's a, I didn't realize that app was out there. That can definitely uh, 
give you sort of different things to play with. Yeah. And I think you alluded to this a little bit, Matt, um, when you sort of thought about, you know, future prospects and, and kids somewhere in the near future. I, I think something that um, is worth chatting about is just for people who are either in that position, uh, maybe expecting to have a family fairly soon, um, or people who have like very specific family ties in different places, either kind of being near family or sort of being environments that are conducive to, to family are definitely big things uh, for, for those types of people. And I don't know, Matt, if, if you can specifically chat about maybe that in, in particular. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, your second point is the kind of easier one to to address. If you want to be near family, go to a program, rank programs that are near family. You know, yeah. if your family's in, in California, ranking Wash U is not a good idea from that perspective and, you know, vice versa. Um, you can change a lot of things about residencies are flexible, residencies will accommodate, you know, specific needs or if you have specific interests. But very few people are going to dig up the hospital and transplant it next to your parents' house if you need help with the kids or whatever. So I think that, you know, there, there are certain things that can't be changed. And if geography is that important, and and, and it might be um, to a lot of people, then then apply and or rank within your geography. Um, I realize that that's restrictive for some people, but it, it, you can't change distance. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah. But for the other things... The, you know, having a program that's larger, uh, has more flexibility, you know, Misty and I, in our role as administrative chiefs are in charge of the schedule for wash for wash neurology. We've more than a couple times this year had to rearrange things for, you know, pregnancies and babies and all sorts of other you know, really important life events. And we're able to do that for people because we have 44 residents we can call on to help cover if, if we were a program of three people a year, that'd be somebody would have done a lot of, a lot of extra. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of things should play into it. And you think kind of thinking through the, okay, if, if this life event happens, how am I going to, what's that going to look like? Cause I think an important consideration and larger programs are just going to be more flexible. Um, you know, we're busy, but we have the people to, you know, kind of play, play resident, you know, chess with or shell game or whatever that metaphor, however that metaphor works. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. And I think, I think that thinking about those things in advance, um, you're, you know, you can't control every variable, but you can control some of them. Yeah, I totally agree. And how about the, the prospect of maybe people who are interested in a specific uh, type of fellowship? Um, and I'll, as I'm saying it, I'll sort of caution, caution those people uh, to be open to uh, change and evolve as, as, as residency goes and, and you get exposed to different things. But maybe if you guys um, comment on if people maybe choosing specific residencies to try to build towards specific fellowship, do you think there's any uh, validity to that kind of an approach? Um, yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, obviously if there is a fellowship that you're considering, um, you don't quite know about as much and maybe you didn't get exposed to it in medical school, I would say picking a program that, you know, will give you the exposure to that fellowship for you to make a decision in the future would, you know, better serve you so that, you know, you don't pick something blindly that you haven't had, you know, much exposure to. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of my take on it, but, you know, I was, 
I wasn't undifferentiated. I was pretty decided um, between two fellowships. And so I chose to go with one after being exposed to both pretty much here. Um, I don't, I don't know if you guys had like a different approach though. Uh, I guess I would, I guess I would say that, um, if you, if you know that you're going to want to do a fellowship, if you, if you, or, or, or even are suspicious that you might want to, uh, and, and recognizing that most, most, I think neurologists these days are doing some kind of fellowship. I, I forget the statistics, but I think the statistic is that most, um, at least our experience at WashU is that a large number of us stay for fellowship. So confo- compounding the picking a four-year home without seeing it via Zoom uh, is the fact that you very very well may be picking your fellowship location also, which could be, you know, one, two, or three years uh, additionally. And so, yep. you know, you should go into it, and you should go into your interviews and, and your and your thinking about your rank list with the. With the thought of, is this a place where I could see myself, you know, being for five years, six years, seven years? Uh, and that really kind of discourages the, oh, I'm going to hold my nose and go to a geographic location I don't want to be in because it's only four years. Well, it might be a lot longer than that. Um, and then, yeah, you, uh, your the residency program should be telling you about fellowship opportunities when you're interviewing. I know that we feature that really prominently that people match into good and varied fellowships out of our residency program, because it's, it's both a marker of prestige and successfully matching your residents to where they want to go for their next, you know, next phase of their training. But it also talks about kind of the breadth and depth of your program to say, look at all these different fellowships we're matching people into. Um, and so I, you know, programs should be talking about that. And if they're not, I, I think that's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I like that, that summation of yeah, the graduates of the residency program should be going to varied and impressive places for, for fellowship. And it just shows that they're sort of able to train residents to, for various different skill sets. And also, Matt, this is a little bit more specific to you um, because of your background as an MD PhD. Um, but any advice for other MD PhDs out there who are maybe looking for residency? And I, I think to your specific situation, it seemed like you had research momentum going at your home institution. You probably had research mentors um, who were here at WashU. Um, do you think most of the time it behooves an MD PhD to stick around their home institution or? Are there maybe specific types who would benefit from going elsewhere? Right. So if you're going to hear this advice given given one way or 180 degrees, the opposite. There are, there are camps of people who say you should never do two steps of your training at the same institution because you need to experience, you know, WashU's way, Harvard's way, UCSF's way, et cetera, of doing whatever it is you're doing. On the other hand, you're going to hear people who say, well, once you found a place where you're doing well and you have good collaborators and you have momentum, if there's not an incentive to move, why move? Um, I did my MD-PhD here. I did residency here and I'm staying here for, for my post-residency you know, job uh, next year. So I, I clearly have picked a camp. Um, yeah. And so I think you know, less on the, should I move or should I not move? You know, are you, are you happy? Are you happy where you are? Do you have an opportunity to grow? If you are 
doing something super niche and it's just you and your mentor doing that, then you're always going to be known as your kind of mentor junior at that institution. But if you're at an, if you're at a big institution where you can kind of, you know, take a little bit of this person's skills and a little bit of that person's skills and make yourself this new kind of hybrid, you know, very novel and you, and you fit in a distinct spot, then I think you can stay there. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of meld multiple different types of, of investigation into a single person and be that person for the, for the division of the department. Uh, and, and then you can be very successful, but for, for an applicant, specifically for the MD PhD, who's interviewing and says, you know what, I'm going to do an R25. I'm going to do a lot of research time. I want to do, you know, when you're that kind of person, you need to, when you're, when you're there virtually or on their website or whatever, you need to flip through the faculty who are there who are doing research and say, do I want to be like a lot of these people? Do they, have they trained one or two physician scientists over the past year or have they trained 20 or 30 or more? Are there people here who I see on the path that I envision myself on. So how many people are getting R25s? How many people are getting K awards? Are they hiring four junior faculty to keep one, you know, long-term or are they hiring two and nurturing them to success? Those are the kinds of things that you can, you know, you can't just straight up ask that all the time, but you can get that information by kind of looking and, and talking to people who, who are in that area. And then the the last thing is is are they doing what you're interested in? If you're an X-ray crystallographer and there's not anybody doing X-ray crystallography, then if that's really important to you, that's that's essentially the same as you know Michigan versus California uh, geographically. Like you, if if that's what you want to do, you need to make sure they they're doing it. That definitely makes sense. That's uh, phenomenal advice. And to switch into more of some of the, the technical stuff when thinking about the residency applications and kind of wrapping stuff up with programs. I got these different pieces of advice at varying points. I'm not sure if you guys got them, um, but uh, I didn't necessarily know what to make them at the time. And so one of the first things was um, that there's some weight in, in notifying the program that you're going to rank number one, that you've ranked them number one. Um, and then the second was sort of this I think it turned out to be more of a, a rumor because I, I didn't do it, that you could reach out to faculty members or the department chair at your home institution and have them reach out to a specific program on your behalf. Um, I specifically reached out to uh, my number one and, and said I was going to rank them number one, and it it didn't really do too much for me. Um, but I don't know if you guys uh, think that either of those holds any weight or, or is helpful at all. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about that approach because um, I was more of the, I guess, the type to kind of like not show all of my cards, like don't show the whole dick to everyone. So like mm. p- places that um, that did express interest in me, I definitely reciprocated and um, told them that I would be ranking them highly, but I never told anyone like you're my number one just because, you know, um, what if, you know, they're just also, you know, playing their cards and uh, telling you you're ranked highly, but what if you rank them number one and you don't match there, you know? So yeah. um, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone, you know, who I was ranking number one or anything, but, you know, I had a tiered list. Um, and so uh, basically my tier was like, 
the top five, then like the next five and the next five and so on. I know that there are rules governing, I, you know, our, our program doesn't, doesn't disclose any information about what we're thinking about people. Um, uh, you know, and I know that there are rules governing what, what programs can say. Um, my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this by any means anymore, but is that applicants can tell us whatever they want. You know, they can volunteer yeah. whatever information. And I would just say, you know, be truthful. Neurology is not that big of an, inst- uh, not big of a community. If you tell five different places that you were their number one, uh, you know, someone's going to notice. Uh, and, and, you know, the rank, the match system favors applicants. Just algorithmically, it favors applicants. So I think, you know, and, and, and there's, there's really beautiful, like, game theory and mathematical modeling that shows if you approach it, if you approach it in good faith, then the best outcome happens. And so programs mm-hmm. are going to be ranking people in good faith. Um, if applicants rank programs in good faith, then I, I think, you know, on average, people are going to end up where they need to be. I, I you know, I, that's very much a, like a trust the man, trust trust the math kind of argument. But I think, I think it's true. I, you know, Misty, we get these emails, you know, of people telling us what they thought, and, and you know, it's it's good. It, I think it, I see it as a reconfirmation of basically what they told us during their interview time that they really like it and that kind of thing. But I don't know that it it sways what we think one way or the other. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's a nice gesture because, you know, I, I definitely sent thank you emails to everyone. I just didn't like say where I was going to rank them. You know, it was very individualized. And those are, you know, appreciated. But it doesn't, um, I don't think it weighs in the decision at all. Um, at least from our perspective, I don't think it does. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's my feeling for it too, that it, it gives you kind of a, a good taste in your mouth about that specific person and sort of a good kind of cordiality, but it's, it's really not going to influence how <clears throat> a specific program sees you one way or another. And Matt, you made me think of, um, so if we're imagining the situation where kind of an applicant's decided, okay, these are my, my top programs. I know out of maybe 10 programs I've interviewed, I like number one, the best, I like uh, two, probably second best, three is third best. Um, would there be any type of um, utility in switching that around or trying to game it from the perspective of, oh, I didn't really get a great impression from this residency program. So even though they're my number one, I don't think they're going to rank me number one. So I might throw my number three up to number one because I got a really good vibe from them. So, you know, I it's been a while since I've reviewed the the match algorithm, but my understanding is that you don't benefit from that. That if you are going to match, it, that if you if you do that, assuming both programs have ranked you number one, let's say, then you're going to rank at number three. You're going to match at number three. Then, if if programs one and two had ranked you, you know, bottom of their list, you're going to rank and and you're going to match at number three. Uh, and you don't so you don't suffer that penalty. You know, there's no penalty to being honest with your rank list. I, I think you should you know, there's so much about this process where people are like double thinking, triple thinking and tying themselves into knots, you know, like, okay. should I send thank yous or not? Should I, you know, what, what interview furniture should I have in the background of my zoom conversation? Like, where should <laughs> I, where should I rank this person? Because they, you know, the program director said they liked me as opposed to really liked me, you know, like I, I, maybe there's information in all of this. Maybe there's signal here. I, 
I have a hard time believing that where any of us are that deliberate about what we're saying. And I think, I think people should just rank programs in the order that they want to rank them. And, and I think trust the system to work because it's, it's worked before and it will continue to work just from an algorithms perspective. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's great advice because like, what if you actually really want it to be at your number one, but you're just, you know, ranking them number three based on a feeling. If you really want to go to number one, rank them number one, because you'll never know if you would have matched there or not if you don't. <laughs> yeah. That's, and that's absolutely my thought process. Well, just sort of rank them as you like them and just, just hope that they do the same with you. And uh, yeah. And then that sort of brings me to something I was thinking about um, in preparing for this interview, a wrinkle that came up for me. I'm not sure if this came up for you guys, but I think one of the unique aspects of neurology residency is there's both um, uh, advanced and categorical spots. Um, so when you're interviewing at the different programs, you're potentially interviewing for both an advanced or categorical spot, which means you're probably doing uh, some amount of prelim spots as well. And at least for me, um, I wasn't great about kind of understanding exactly how the rank system worked with the prelims. And I sort of was under the mindset, okay, um, if I'll go out and interview at maybe a couple prelims um, to just have some backup options for, for advanced spots, but really I, I want to stay in a place for four years. And so ideally I'd want a categorical spot. <clears throat> and so I, I sort of set up my rank list before I truly understood how it worked with kind of all my categorical spots for the programs I really liked followed by uh, advanced spots by certain programs um, and not realizing that. Um, so when you, kind of rank a program, if you rank a categorical spot and then an advanced spot, and then maybe a categorical spot at a different program, if you don't match into the categorical spot, and so you go to the advanced spot, if you don't match to a, the prelim that you've associated with that advanced spot, um, it doesn't skip to the next one. Um, you essentially will match into an advanced spot and then potentially have to soak for a prelim um, uh, first year which obviously then means that you're probably going to be doing a prelim spot and not the greatest uh, place. And, and so that was, wasn't something I, I'd realized initially. And then by the time I did realize that, I, I was kind of kicking myself because I, I didn't really have enough prelim spots to really be fully confident, okay, if I uh, rank this advanced spot um, and I don't match a prelim, then I'll, I really don't want to scramble and I, I can't be confident that I won't. Um, so I don't know if you guys had any specific advice, if, if you were in a similar situation of how to think about advanced versus categorical spots, particularly if you're really like a specific program that offers both. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I, I think Matt might be better served for this question, because honestly, once I looked at like the, the mathematics of like trying to interview at a lot of neurology programs plus prelim spots, I kind of dropped all of my interviews at the places that only had advanced spots. Um, so, yeah. so I didn't have to do that because, um, I didn't want to waste my time on like, you know, being in a, you know, different city for one year and then, you know, having the possibility of being across the country and having to move after a year for another like categorical, um, program. So I, maybe Matt has some better experience with that one. I don't actually, <laughs> I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, well, the, just a specific advice that, that I'll offer from, from going through it is, um, uh, 
yeah, I think you just have to ask yourself um, if you really like a program and you want to, and you you're comfortable with maybe being somewhere else for one year and then moving to that city um, or especially a program, maybe that's all advanced spots sort of being in a different city. Um, and especially if you maybe have a couple prelim spots that you're pretty confident about, um, but maybe don't have a lot and are somewhat comfortable with, with, uh, soaping for a prelim spot, then yeah, just sort of rank categorical in advance, essentially the same, but maybe if there's some hesitation, if you really don't want to soap for a spot, if you're didn't really interview at a ton of prelim programs, which I would say, uh, my number would be about five or six is, is probably, um, at least a, a good idea that you'll probably match at one, um, then maybe be a little bit more hesitant about uh, ranking an advanced spot and either maybe rank all categorical or, or sort of kind of think about it a little bit more. Yeah. Cause uh, I mean, with the advanced spots, you're essentially uh, up against not just people in neurology, but you know, everyone. Uh, and so that, that comes with, you know, people that are not necessarily like people that are doing, you know, these specialties that are like, you know, derm, radiology, you're also competing for the same spots that they are. Um, I don't know. Yep. That, that was just, that seemed a little bit odd to me to be interviewing with people that wouldn't be my peers later on. Yep. It's a, a strange wrinkle in the uh, neurology process. And uh, I would imagine, hopefully we move towards sort of a, a all categorical kind of setup in the future. But because, yeah, it just it makes things a little bit strange when you, you hit the interview trail, particularly if you really like a specific program who, uh, that only offers advanced spots, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. And then, so uh, we chatted a, a, a ton about how to choose a, a specific residency program and how to uh, pick a place. And, um, I wanted to shift slightly, um, uh, to kind of wrap things up and conclude, uh, just cause you guys, I, I think are just coming off a busy recruitment season and, are probably a wealth of knowledge about um, how potential applicants who are maybe listening to this now, who themselves aren't fourth years, but are either third years or, or want to do neurology in the future. If you're uh, an applicant applying to neurology programs, how do you, you stand out as an applicant? Maybe what can you do to to make yourself jump out of the pile? There's a lot. Say be yourself. Yeah. I was going to say, there's a lot to be said about being just normal. Um, <laughs> You know, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's like beyond people's control. Now their board scores, their, you know, class scores, their rotation scores. Um, if you, if you got the interview, that means the program is will is on paper willing to take you, right? We don't interview people that were like, Oh, never would I ever take this person. So, you, you know, it's, it's about, it's as much you're interviewing us as much as we're interviewing you. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of applicants and a lot of programs and we're trying to make the best matches. There are a lot of really great people who may not thrive in our particular environment or in another particular environment. And so I would just say, be honest and be yourself and be, be, be genuine to that. And, you know, I think a lot of the conversations we have when we're ranking people is when someone's clearly trying to like put on a show, it's, pretty obvious to everybody. And then you got to say, what are they hiding? You know, what's going on there. And so I think, I think yeah. being yourself, being normal, just being, being trying to, trying to act like you're going to act when you're a resident. Cause that's what people are trying. That's what the programs, that's what the residents are trying to figure out when they're talking with you is like, is this somebody I want to work with? 
Um, and then the, yeah. the faculty are saying, is this somebody that we can teach to be a great neurologist? Um, and so just be you, I guess would be my. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And especially uh, when you're dealing with the, the residents that you meet, it's uh, you're, as Matt said, interviewing them as much as they are you. And so when you can kind of put your true self forward, you'll really get an idea of, okay, is this a, a group of people? Is this a culture that the parts of myself identify with really mesh well with these people? And I think if you're kind of a, uh, someone who keeps kind of shifting to maybe match uh, the different feeling that you're getting from others, um, you, you kind of lose that information of, oh, I, I really don't know where I personally fit. And I, I think that was some of the most useful knowledge I got from the interview trail of, you know, when I kind of had a bunch of residents, I was getting along well with great. I, I really felt like I saw myself in them. I could see myself being friends with them. I, I think that was always a huge uh, plus for a program. And uh, I think probably the last question I'll, I'll ask you guys, having read, you know, countless personal statements from different residents, any specific advice for how to craft a personal statement or, or things that you really liked in reading some of the personal statements? Um. I guess for me, I like a good theme. I, you know, creative writing is great, uh, not too abstract, but but something, you know, that has a clear, like, you know, great, like introductory um, paragraph and then, you know, kind of go through all the like steps that led you to neurology or whatever case, you know, just try to tie it all together into something central so that like people don't get bored reading it is what I would say. Um, that being said, mm -hmm you know, personal statements are personal statements and they're, they're not necessarily meant to be exciting. So, uh, yeah. take that with some grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think that personal statements need to be, uh, you know, just, I guess I would say more, more red flags come from personal statements than like, oh my gosh, this person who we weren't going to offer an interview to is so amazing from their personal statement. I think, I think you, I think, yeah, you only get to lose points, but that, that's my personal opinion. Maybe that's narrow minded, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, easy to, uh, yeah. Show yourself as someone who should be questioned as opposed to really blow someone away, especially if you don't really know specifically the, the reader that's going to be reading it. Yeah. yeah. I would also say on that, on that note, like have someone proofread it. Um, yes. have a couple of people read it so they can catch little errors and things because that does matter too. Um, when you're reading personal statements, if there's a lot of errors, then, you know, you think that the person doesn't really care about their personal statement. And so that kind of reflects poorly. Absolutely. Um, awesome guys. Uh, well, I think this was great. I think we touched on a lot of stuff. Hopefully, uh, people listening will, will also get some help from it. I, I think, Concluding on a positive note, too, I think for anyone out there who's about to match, I think the silver lining of all of this is there are tons of phenomenal programs out there, and so you really can't go wrong um, with any of them. And uh, you're you're going to get phenomenal training at a variety of different residencies. And so, you know, even if the maybe the one you really wanted or, or um, the place that you really wanted to be doesn't work out, um, you'll you'll be able to find your footing regardless. I think a lot of how you thrive in residency is really about how proactive you are, how much you make the most of your opportunity. And so uh, that being said, I, I think you guys will, will do great. Um, but uh, Matt and Misty, 
thanks so much for, for chatting with me and, and thanks for running recruitment here at WashU. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jamie. That concludes my interview with Dr. Matt Breyer and Dr. Misty Harrison. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to my podcast, liking me on Facebook, following me on Instagram at Brainboy Neurology, or on Twitter at Brainboy Neuro. And as always, feel free to pass along any comments or suggestions. The opinions expressed on this show are those of Brainboy Neurology and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the places of employment of the Brainboy Neurology staff. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician.